You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 138. What's going on, Mark? God, Jake, we've been so busy and we haven't even hit March yet. But, you know, we've gotten a bunch of good feedback on this show and, and, and our other shows, too. So for any of our uh, new listeners, welcome aboard. Uh, this is a family and you'll become part of it. For our long-term listeners, you know that you're part of our family. And we, we, we could not have ever accomplished all this without you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And speaking of supporting the show, it's really easy. One thing we ask, all you have to do is go leave us a review in iTunes. And that is the best way to support the show. We got a great review high-end information density. Great show, guys. I really appreciate your well-rounded take on the industry. Marathon Oil's business development partner is a big fan. Hey, shout out to Big Marathon Oil out there and their BD guys. Um, this is submitted by Z Kimball 1245 from the U.S. So yeah, big shout out to Marathon. Thanks for the iTunes reviews. Come on, people. If Marathon can do it, you can do it too. <laughs> All right, let's get into the news stories. This week, uh, kind of like what we talked about earlier, it's just a lot of global news. Um, not a whole lot going on here stateside. We have a few articles, but we're going to kind of dive into the geopolitical scene and uh, see how things are playing out. So first up, Saudi Arabia has vowed to cut more production to stabilize the oil market. So they're planning on cutting an additional 100,000 barrels per day of its oil production next month to keep its exports below the 7 million barrels per day in March in a bid to help clear the global oversupply and counteract the recent oil market volatility. Yeah, this is interesting because, you know, Saudi Aramco is headed toward IPO. Keeping prices low, I mean, keeping supply low, which could keep prices uh, higher and more stabilized, really only helps your initial public offering if you're something yeah. like Saudi Aramco. If you think about that, you know, what their book value is based a lot upon their proven reserves and what the uh, price of oil is and what the spectators think that's going to be in the future. So I, I appreciate them doing this. You know, Russia's working them to doing this to keep oversupply from developing. But I think they have a selfish reason to do this. And quite honestly, Jake, if I was in their shoes, I would do this exact thing too. I'd, you know, I'd want to come out the gate with as, as high an offering as possible. And this would just help get you there. So I don't think this is anything revolutionary or anything that people didn't predict would happen. Yep. All right. Up next, the interior is to hold the largest oil and gas lease sale in U.S. history, which we've talked about multiple times. I guess they're just announcing some more details and the auction is actually taking place uh, next month on March 21st. So if it's your first time tuning in, the Department of Interior announced on Friday that they're auctioning off 77.3 million acres of offshore waters to for drilling in the off the coast of Texas, Louisiana. Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. But we know that a lot of the a lot of the Florida coast is actually going to be excluded until 2022 at least. So they're crediting. Uh, I think they did a, another sale last year. I think in which they were able to raise revenue by one billion dollars just in the lease sale. So cool stuff going on there. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that the largest profitable entity in the United States, as far as oil and gas, isn't. Exxon or Shell mm -hmm. or Chevron. It's the U.S. government. They make more money than anybody because they auction off these leases. And if you're an oil and gas company, you bid on this. And if things are heating up, it's like anything else that you're bidding on. Prices go up, right? And then you're awarded the bid, you're awarded the lease, and then you have X amount of time to go in production. If not, it gets thrown in the pot, it gets awarded, uh, bid out again. So it's, it's a big risk factor here. And even in today's technology uh, entrenched 
upstream world, when you're doing exploration and production and you actually go into production, only about 75% of the wells are economically feasible, which means about 25% of them aren't, which means you lose that money. And then we talked about this in other shows about how Florida has is raised a ruckus about drilling offshore in Florida. I, I really think from a public perception point of view, you will probably see no drilling on the East Coast at all, at least for another decade. You know, we need to change the perception that this is something that's uh, bad for the environment to something that this is good for the environment and good for the people of those coastal states because they could use the revenue. I mean, it's long-term revenue. So even though they drill and go in production, Jake, they got to move that oil. And if yeah. you're off the coast of Florida or Virginia, what makes sense is to build a subsea pipeline and move it up. Well, now you're making revenue on land, even though the oil's coming off your coast. So I think from a public perception, we're not going to see any drill on the East Coast. I think eventually we'll get there. You know, probably another eight or 10 years. But, you know, this is just, you know, hats off to our current administration for open up lands for drilling, which just fosters energy independence for the U.S. and also creates a bunch of high paying, enjoyable jobs, which is prosperity for all of us. Yep. It's all good stuff. Cool. Next, uh, Inbridge eyes a $6.4 billion uh, in asset sale income. So Inbridge is planning on divesting assets worth $6.4 billion this year, which is more than double the company's initial divestment plan for that period. Yeah. And so let me tell you what Enbridge is doing. (laughs) Enbridge is is getting rid of non-core parts of their business and they're raising cash for new uh, projects that, that is part of their core business. And part of this also, quite frankly, Jake, we talked about this early about public perception. Some of Enbridge's projects, not just Enbridge, all the pipeline companies, some of them have run into public perception snags that quite frankly, the company, in this case, Enbridge goes, you know what? It's not worth fighting these people, right? That are, that are protesting what we're doing. Let's just go somewhere else, which means that area of the country loses out on those jobs and loses out on that, that, you know, the revenue, the state and the taxes and the, you know, the schools, all that stuff misses out. So there's a, a big project they're working on. It does hit the news too often um, from Edmonton, Canada to Superior. And they call that Project Line 67. And they're going to pump a bunch of money in there because it's very profitable for them. But, but this is, you would expect this type of thing. And, and I expect to see this a lot with the big pipeline kinds of contracts, right? Enbridge, Enterprise Product Partners, uh, TransCanada, Kinder Morgan. They're all going to be tweaking their business model because the business of being a transport has changed. So the pipeline companies now have other revenue streams, such as mixed blending in the pipe. They have newfound public opposition in different parts of the country that they have to figure out how to deal with. And I think one of the best ways to deal with it is, is just to go, you know what, we're not doing it and just shut it down and then come back later uh, once the public perception has changed and try it again. But you know, here's Enbridge raising some money, get, shedding stuff that's non core to their business. They can concentrate on what is core to their business. So speaking of pipelines, uh, the next article is uh, talking about how Kinder Morgan is getting the green light on part of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, so Canada's National Energy Board has given Kinder Morgan the go-ahead to start construction on a tunnel entrance into British Columbia's Burnaby Mountain. It will be part of the Trans Mountain Oil Pipeline Extension. Yeah, this is a mess. So just because uh, Canada's National Energy Board has given Kinder Morgan the go-ahead to start construction, there's still like a dozen or even more parts and pieces that have to be approved. And almost all of them are facing some type of lawsuit, some type of public opposition. This is this is a mess. And you know what? It's, it's, it's amazing that the British government allowed a trade war to, to break out between uh, British Columbia and Alberta. You know, now you have two worn factions of Canada's government and, 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 you know, only one of them's actually worried about the business. So, you know, this is, this is going to be interesting to watch this play out. This sort of stuff, you know, these type of expansions where different 
parts of the Canadian government give approval, but then other parts aren't given approval. And then they have, you know, protests. This is just a mess. And, and it's going to be interesting to watch Kinder Morgan navigate its way through this. And we'll keep an eye on this one because this is huge. If Kinder Morgan can pull this off, it's going to set precedence for all the p- other pipeline companies. If they can't, it's just going to be bad for Canada. So let's keep an eye on this one. All right, up next, the European Union is ready to start negotiating uh, Iran's participation in the Southern Gas Corridor project. So the Southern Gas Corridor is a project of strategic importance uh, for the EU, and it's it's supposed to reduce the dependence on Russian gas by eventually replacing uh, part of it with Aziri gas from the Shah Deniz field in the Caspian Sea. Mark, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so this is a project where you know hopefully the european union can negotiate through this this would be nothing good i mean it's nothing but good for the european union europe needs to break its stranglehold on russian gas which provides all of our energy we actually had our first shipment of lng hit europe i think last week from the us so there's another market disruption going on the the us shipping out lng to europe but this is this is this trying to get this done is going to be a mess just because of where it is in the world, all the warring factions that's going on that, you know, there's other people, other entities that need to join this project to actually make it up. So, you know, it's 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 had its issues. It had its I mean, stuff's been blown up. <laughs> You've had uh, environmental groups challenge this, but it's really good for Europe to actually help reduce CO2 emissions in Europe as well. So let's keep our eye on this one. This one's a mess, and, and this one's very tangled, and it's hard to see what the clear outcomes could be. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on this one as well. So speaking of messes, let's get your take on this. Uh, so Russia is taking over Syria's oil and gas. <laughs> so they have, a, uh, I guess, an energy cooperation framework agreement that was signed that gives Russia the exclusive rights to produce oil and gas in Syria. Yeah, so couple of things. This was something that was agreed upon in the past that, that we knew about. So this is nothing new. The second thing is there's a lot of potential for Russia here to basically take over Syria's energy sector. But what Russia's walking into is worse than a greenfield, is worse than pristine land. The, the, the country is in ruin. It's, it's desolated. All the refineries have been blown to pieces. All the pipelines have been blown to pieces. They're almost producing no oil, even though they have tons of reserves. So, so it's going to take a lot of capital and a lot of engineering expertise to help Sierra rebuild all of this. And if you could dump that type of money and time into a country, in a country where you may or may not be kicked out you know, five or six years later for nationalization, the best thing to do is just walk in and own a piece of it, which is Russia did up front, I mean, I mean, months ago. Now, it's, what's going to be interesting, Jake, is is Russia is still under sanctions from the U.S. And so will this, moving into Syria and start rebuilding all of this infrastructure, will this violate the sanctions from both the U.S. and Europe? Will this make things worse from Russia? Because they really need, especially the U.S., they need the U- U.S.'s help with this, yeah, everything from capital to technology. So let's keep an eye on this. I know uh, Shell, as in Royal Dutch Shell, is involved with this, which is uh, you know European super major. Smart move by Russia, but now that work actually has to begin. And it's you know you and I were talking about this off the mic. It's always great to have a good idea, but it's it's actually the rubber hit the road, the execution part that fails. So let's see if Russia can actually execute us. I don't think they can do it by themselves. They're going to need help either from a European or, or U.S. major or super major. But smooth move on their part years ago, or I should say months ago, to negotiate that they will take over the Syrian uh, energy sector. I, I mean, there's just so much potential in it. But like I said, there's literally zero infrastructure. They have to build everything back from scratch. Yeah. 
All right, up next, uh, MESCO is joining the IEA, so the International Energy Agency. We've talked a lot about some of the reports that have come out of that organization, especially over the last probably five, six months. So it's it's becoming the first uh, Latin American member uh, as a part of an open doors policy aimed at strengthening the ties between the IEA and emerging economies. I'm sorry, I was drinking. <laughs> so not drinking. I was drinking. I was drinking coffee, everybody. Mark's, Mark's uh, wasted. So <laughs> no, not yet. So actually, Jake, you know, we're talking about doing a live event, which we'll talk about later, but it would be cool for all of us to record a podcast as we're drinking at the live event. It'll get funnier and funnier <laughs> as, as the night goes on. <laughs> so this is awesome, right? So you have all the world's emerging economies. You have IEA looking for new members. Mexico is probably the best new member to come on board. Mexico has a ton of reserves. The problem is they can't get the oil and gas out of the ground. And for the longest time, the government laws were such that any other operator couldn't own the hydrocarbons, which made it really hard for Mexico to get other people to come help. Well, the, they managed to change the the laws uh, about a year and a half ago, which I can't believe they pulled off, which then makes it much more appetizing for the U.S. and American service companies and majors and super majors to come in and help them and, and get a piece of the pie. So, you know, Mexico needs to increase production. They've been unable to do so, which on a side note, there's a ton of pipelines being built from Texas to Mexico, provide them with gas from Texas, which I just think is awesome. You don't hear that in the news at all. Uh, even though they have their gas, they can't get it on the ground, and it's cheaper for them to buy it from, from West Texas. So this is going to allow Mexico to bring in the expertise they need to help bring their people out of poverty. You can't bring a rural population up to modern standards without cheap, abundant, reliable energy. In this case, we're talking about electricity. And Mexico needs a ton of electrical generation uh, capacity built, which they're working on. But you need to fuel those generators in the best, most environmentally friendly way to do it. So natural gas. So this is this is great. I'm actually glad Mexico's coming in. Jake, did you know that their Pemex, which is Mexico's national oil company, do you know Pemex actually has a retail gas station here in Houston? Do they? I didn't know that. Isn't that cool? It's over by, not too far from Sitco on, I can't remember the name of that road where Sitco's headquartered, but the, it's an experiment by Pemex because the Mexican people have a very are very loyal. And so they come here to the U.S., they come here to Texas, but they have a choice between buying you know, gasoline at a Shell gas station or a Pemex gas station. They'll buy it from Pemex because of the loyalty, the brand loyalty. So it's really interesting because, of course, that gasoline and that diesel in that Pemex gas station doesn't come from Pemex. It comes from actually BP, the closest refinery. But it's, it'd be interesting to watch it from a marketing exercise to see if that takes off for them. But, yeah, this is all great news. You know, we, we welcome Mexico to the IEA, and, and we look forward to this being successful and just fun for everybody. Right, the last article was kind of a fun article. So Saturn's tiny moon – has far bigger oil and gas reserves than Earth. I thought this was pretty unique. This came out today. So the Cassini probe, I think that's how you say it, took a death dive into Saturn's atmosphere last year and detected the reserves on Titan during its 20-year mission to the planet. So Earth's natural gas reserves are 300 times the amount of energy the U.S. uses for residential heating, cooling, and lighting. But the reserves on Titan are hundreds of times that of, of what's on Earth. Uh, they have huge lakes of liquid methane and ethane on the surface. The thing is that Titan is nearly a billion miles from the sun. It's a little larger than Earth's own moon, and it's mostly frozen. So it only receives about 1% of the, the sunlight that the Earth gets. And as a result, it's, as you can imagine, probably pretty damn cold. Well, it is pretty damn cold. It's so cold that basically natural gas forms lakes on the surface. That's crazy. Imagine going there. Isn't that cool? I mean, you know, we talk about liquefied natural gas. That's, that's you know, cryo technology is part of that, keeping it really, really cool. I think it's a minus 160 degrees 
Cinegrate uh, for LNG. I may be wrong, but maybe one of our listeners can correct me on that if I'm wrong about that. Well, here's natural LNG because it's 180 degrees, <laughs> minus 180 degrees centigrade on Titan. And so the hydrocarbons form liquid pools. And I, you know, not that we're ever going to run out of hydrocarbons because we won't. Another thing, Jake, that a lot of people don't realize is they think hydrocarbons quit being created during the Pleistocene era, the Triceric era, you know, the dinosaur area. Hydrocarbons are still being created now. Nobody talks about that. Hydrocarbons are still being created ocean literally today. Not at the same rate as they were, but still happen. But how cool this is, we want to tap into some additional hydrocarbons. There's a little, literally a moon that is covered with a lake of natural gas. That is pretty cool. Just sit right, sitting right here in our sub. Isn't that cool? It, it reminds me a lot hey, of Hey, Elon these. Musk. <laughs> Here's a goal for you, <laughs> right? This is the stuff that makes your rocket fuel. See if you can figure out a cheap way to go to Titan and come back with the payload. That, that would be a good challenge. It's funny. It reminds me of these, uh, there are these asteroid mining companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. This is real. They raised, literally raised hundreds of millions of dollars to, uh, you know, mine precious metals off of asteroids. But there's one thing that none of them have been able to figure out. It's how do you get on the asteroid? How do you how do you hop on there? How do you catch it? How do you do what? You know, it's they've only got the drilling part down. So there's actually a lot of benefits from mining in space. The zero gravity actually helps you in a lot of ways. You know, somebody like me could go grab a 500 ton boulder, right? And because there's no gravity, it doesn't really fight, weigh 500 tons. Now it has inertia. I got to be careful to move it too fast because it'll keep pulling me with it. But I could actually move it. So you can think about robots actually being very productive especially something like an asteroid field where you'd have a big ship was basically a crusher and the robots would go out and move the small asteroids to the crusher and crush it up and then refine the minerals so that you know there's you know that's somewhere in our future probably is it gonna happen next week with jake and i probably not although jake's <laughs> been working on some really cool stuff you never know <laughs> but but anyway yeah, i mean how cool is that that companies are now looking at not just going into space but actually doing it commercially because that's the big that's the big hurdle. If you can figure out a way to make money in outer space, well, then you're going to spur space travel and the acceleration of technology and so on and so on. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited for this and, and I'd like to see this development more. And I'm, you know, I'm making fun of SpaceX, but not really. They're doing some really cool stuff. And I mean, they, they could just as easily capitalize this as anybody else. They sure could. And that about wraps it up for the stories. So like we said, we're not announcing the uh, Red Wing bag winner, but if you want to win your own Red Wing offshore bag, uh, you can go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. No purchase necessary. You can see the uh, site for the rules and details for that. Hey, good job on the legalese there, Jay. Yeah, no, I need to make sure I put that in there. So, and then the weekly, weekly rig count uh, from Julian, let me pull it up real quick, is uh, 1,041 rigs. Not bad. We're only down 1%. Yeah, that's a good number. Hey, we, we, we still got activity. Yeah, and then events on deck. We have a whole bunch of events we're going to this year. We have a whole bunch we have our eye on. If you'd like to be, have an insider look and all that, go sign up for my monthly email newsletter. Uh, we take all the oil and gas events, put them in your inbox once a month. We don't charge you for it. No spam. Jake will put a link in the show notes. And then Jake... You and I and every other podcast we have have been talking about for a long time doing some type of live event, and we never did it, which is shame on us. We're going to really, really do this one. So we're going to do a cocktail event in March, uh, which is next month, 2018, here in Houston. Uh, it'll be a, probably a meetup event. We don't have any of the details yet, but we should have the details out next week. If you want to learn about those details and come join us in person and have a drink and meet the other podcasters, 
go to LinkedIn to sign up for uh, OGGN, Oil and Gas Global Network, or if you're on our website, Jake's on our website for this show, uh, Oil and Gas This Week, just give us your email address. And then as soon as we have the details worked out, we'll let you know. We should hopefully have those details out in the next week or so, but it'll be fun. Cocktails, we get together just for the uh, podcast listeners and um, you know we get to meet y'all in person. We're looking forward to actually meeting to a lot of our, our listeners out there. We're really excited for this. So details are coming. Go sign up. Awesome. Yep. And then speaking of events, we have, uh, I think, 41 trade shows or conferences we're going to for 2018. If you'd like to get your company involved with that in a way that's beneficial to your sales and marketing team, reach out to me. I'll be happy to share details. We're looking for event sponsors. And then first Friday Q&A, you know the drill. You go to oilandgasthisweek.com, click ask a question, give us your information. And then if we use your question on the microphone, we will give you a huge shout out and a big thank you. And then, like I said, while you're there, go ahead and give us your email address. We don't spam. This way you'll find out the stuff we're doing first. Like if you want to find out second, I don't know why you'd want to find out second, go to LinkedIn for the OGGN group. We went through a lot today, Jake. It's actually President's Day. So maybe that's why we got through stuff so much quicker. (laughs) That has to be it. Maybe not. (laughs) Yeah. You ready to get out of here? Yeah, let's do it. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.